0: Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast where we explore geopolitical issues in a historical context. I'm Suzanne Rain and I'm joined by my regular co-host, Ali Ansari. Today, by um arguably by popular demand, although not that popular.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure it's that popular.
0: We've decided not to have a guest because we're going to talk about Iran. And Ali is our Iranian expert, so I'm going to Quiz him, and I'm hoping that this is going to be a very illuminating discussion. The reason we're talking about Iran uh, is that it may have escaped most people's notice, but there are negotiations ongoing in Vienna which are seeking to bring Iran back into. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, which was the Iran nuclear deal reached between the P5 plus one, permanent five plus Germany and Iran in 2015. And those negotiations are reaching a critical phase. And the American State Department spokesman is saying either we're going to know that we've got a new deal or we have to face a different reality of mounting tensions and crisis. And we've kind of got a lot of mounting tensions and crisis in the world at the moment. And almost we've forgotten that we used to live in an almost permanent state of mounting tensions and crisis with respect to Iran. So, so we thought we need to look at what's happening in Vienna and then, as always, pan out and understand more about what's going on in Iran at a moment and how that's affecting the Middle East and what might happen next. Starting off, Ali, what's... The state of play on the JCPOA.
1: Well, thank you, thank you, Suzanne. I mean, the interesting thing is there has been a degree of radio silence, and I suppose in some ways it's also been overtaken by events elsewhere. I mean, it's it's one of the interesting things for the Iranians; they're, they're, they're no longer the, the the top draw. I think in international crises, although it's obviously still very important, the negotiations are ongoing, uh, as you have quite rightly said. You know, the Americans are saying that. And, and actually the British as well. And and, and I think, uh, you know, the, the Europeans in general are basically saying that time is running out, but they, they've actually been saying time is running out for some time. Uh, but we are reaching probably by the end of uh, this month, uh, a crunch point because there are these sort of two track. you know, what the what the Iranians want, basically, is a return to the JCPOA as agreed in 2015 which, of course, the Americans pulled out of. So the Americans pulled out of under Trump, and then the the Iranians, as a a result of that, started to sort of like wind down some of their own obligations under the agreement. But the difficulty is, and I think this is what's affecting people, is that many of the sort of the restrictions that were agreed in the original JCPOA in 2015 are probably going to be, you know, the sunset clauses are going to be kicking in from 2023 onwards. And so really, you know what the Americans and the Brits and others are saying is that what we need, in a sense, is a as a sort of a enhanced follow up agreement of some sort, which will sort of extend the terms of that and maybe strengthen it. And the Iranians have been quite resistant to that idea. So the, the, there is a there is a problem here that you know whatever agreement you do reach. Let's say, for the sake of argument, we get somewhere by the end of February. Which I still think the odds are that we will get to some sort of agreement. The likelihood is probably that's going to be, although it won't be presented as an interim agreement, it will effectively be something like a stepping stone to what they hope will be something continuing. So the sad reality is for those people who enjoy negotiating these long and rather tedious agreements, in, in, uh, this is likely to go on for some time uh, because what we'll get is a sort of a uh, an initial sort of like sort of return if you can put it that way, where then the realization actually that you know what we need to do is think about what happens next. And that was always on the cards, by the way. I mean, the point was even in 2015 when the agreement was reached, And it wasn't signed, by the way. Everyone says it's signed. It's not a treaty. That's the problem. It's an agreement. So um, even then, people were saying, well, that gives us a bit of a window, a bit of a space to sort of develop things, to see how relations develop. But then, you know, obviously, as the sunset clauses kick in, we'll have to review things then. It's not the way, interestingly enough, that the Iranians saw it. And this is is one of the issues.
0: Ali, can I interrupt you just to to ask some basic clarification points? So the agreement was to limit Iran's stockpile... Of enriched uranium, because it's uh, the highly enriched uranium that you can use to build a nuclear weapon. Well, the the
1: agreement, no, the agreement was to close all pathways to a nuclear weapon. I mean, that's basically of which obviously enrichment is a key element.
0: And in return, and this hinges around this sort of um, you know alarming word, breakout time, which is essentially how much time Western experts assess it will take Iran, if they say go, to build a nuclear bomb. With the uranium that they've got, and 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 as for as long as I can remember, which is arguably these 20 years, it's always been around the corner. So we've always been expecting that you know it's it's about at maximum a year away. And I think, as I understand it, what they're saying now is that breakout time because since Trump reneged on the deal, the breakout time the Iranians have been basically mass producing enriched uranium massive shortcut there Um, and so the breakout time is now much much shorter and one of the aims of these new negotiations is to make it longer again but the reason I'm asking all this because that that obviously would require the Iranians to get rid of the highly enriched yeah, uranium. Yeah, I mean, basically to made. ship
1: out, to ship out the enriched uranium. I mean, the, the thing about it, and I think you've hit the nail on the head there, of course, is that the problem with it, I mean, this is in a sense some sort of arms control agreement. It's always been heavily, heavily affected by politics. So the political rhetoric gets in the way, I think, in, in many ways, not only in terms of the lead up to any agreement. So as you quite rightly say, people have been proclaiming Armageddon, you know, from time Memorial. But the the, the point is, even when the agreement was reached, there was a lot of political flannel that went round it, that even in Iran, say nothing in the United States about how this was going to open up a new dawn. It actually, you know, it had fairly limited aims, quite important aims, but limited aims. And I think... People were selling it in a way to try and obviously get over quite reluctant electorates, certainly in certainly in the United States, and, and to some extent Iran, of course, but to get get over that hurdle. But in you know, my criticism in a way about the politics of it, and this is where I'm more critical, is that they oversold it. They oversold it and raised expectations about what it might lead, particularly in Iran. I mean, people had this sort of fanciful idea that, you know, all sanctions were going to be lifted. It, that's simply not covered in the JCPA. Primary sanctions remain in place. And the primary sanctions, the American sanctions, are basically the ones that cause the most damage. I mean, this is, you know, so it's, it's, it's something that I think people, th- there needs to be a heavy dose of realism about what this entails. And, you know, one of my concerns, I suppose, about the Iranian position now even, is that they still have this sort of rather exaggerated sense of what it would deliver. I mean, they see the JCPA actually has something with much sort of more wide ranging sort of benefits, even though, I mean, one of the things also that you point out is we've all, well, I haven't, but a lot of people, I suppose, have become great experts in breakout time and, you know, enrichment and how many strength you just need this and that and the other. In fact, we've done comparatively little work on sanctions and sanctions relief. Now, who's to blame for that is, is that I think, you know, you can share the blame quite widely in some ways, including the Iranians who never really looked in, in detail about what that meant so in that sense you know the, the the sort of aspect of what the Iranians would benefit from this agreement it was never really detailed it was much more vague you know about trying hard to help trade or something you know and this sort of thing and not in impeding trade but it didn't actually go into detail about how this sort of very Byzantine structure of sanctions that have been built up over years were actually going to be
0: unwound and that's the really interesting thing, isn't it, because any negotiation, everybody everybody has to come out of it feeling actually that they've gained something, but also that they can sell that back to their population, that if they've made a concession, particularly on a point of principle, that, that, it, that it's a valid concession because you've got something greater in return. And somehow even that you've managed to pull off a slight of hand because the other side didn't quite realise what they've given you, maybe. I was struck having you know talked to Nora a couple of weeks ago about energy supply. And clearly, Iran had thought sanctions would be lifted. They could sell their crude oil again on the international market. Um, you were pointing out the other day that there's large gas supply.
1: Huge amount of gas reserves, which have barely been exploited, by the way.
0: So do you think, is there something in this about energy
1: or or isn't there? Well, I mean, there is. You see, there is. But the 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 devil is in the detail, if I put it that way. You know, there's this sort of view. And the Iranian view in some ways was, ah, you know, we'll come to this agreement in 2015. The sanctions will be lifted. I mean, they'll be suspended to begin with, but lifted. And we'll simply re-enter the oil market as if everyone else in the oil market will say, oh, well, welcome back. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it just doesn't work like that. And, and I don't know why. Plenty of very competent people in the Iranian government who would understand, you know, that actually to re-enter the market that you've been excluded from for several years is going to take some work. You're going to have to become sort of attractive to oil majors and others. And so, you know, from 2015 through, well, I should say from 2016, that the, the, the window of opportunity the Iranians had was really in 2016 before Trump's election. So there was a window of opportunity there. And and the oil minister tried valiantly, it has to be said, to sort of put out this international petroleum contract to try and bring in oil majors. And, you know, actually where the resistance happened was not from the United States or elsewhere, because this was still the Obama administration. The resistance came from within Iran. You know, it was hardliners within Iran who were unwilling to open up their, you know, oil sector for the investment it needed. So these are issues. So if you go to gas, you know, for you know, as long as I can remember, you know, when I was, you know, working much more closely around 20, 20 25 years ago, Iran has the second largest natural gas reserves in the world. I mean, it shares this great sort of like gas field with Qatar, but it's the second largest natural gas reserves, barely touched. And the argument was always then, even then, in, uh, back in the Khatimi years, we're talking about the 1990s, when the international mood was a good deal more favorable that ah you know this would be a means by which you know you integrate iran into the global economy they can be a supplier of gas both to europe and others. of course it it never never has happened and we see as you know as you point out you know that you know now we're sort of dependent on russia so i mean one of the interesting things that comes out of iran recently is there's a lot of them in iran who are sort of saying that the russians in some ways manipulated iran out of that market in order to dominate it it's quite interesting you know, they sort of think that you know is Russia really our friend? I'm not so sure. You know, and you know, I'm sort of inclined to think that you know the Russians, if you look historically, of course, you know the Russians are very keen on their own interests, and um, I don't think they were going to bend over backwards to let Iran take a share of their market.
0: And interesting, as as you and I learnt, uh, gas counts as green energy in a way that oil
1: doesn't. Absolutely, yes. Even though in practice, I mean, I think, you know, if it's li- liquefied national ga- natural gas, it's quite, you know, it's transported similarly, I suppose.
0: But this moves us on, I think, quite neatly to the question about internal politics in Iran, because as you're saying here, they're, they're sitting on a huge amount of unexploited or not currently exploitable natural resources, some of which will become increasingly unacceptable I, the you know the oil question the future is unresolved, gas probably more acceptable. What impact does any of this have on Iranian politics at the moment? And to answer that, I suppose you're going to have to explain Iranian politics at the moment because they're quite complicated.
1: It is difficult, of course, because the argument always was that. Back in 2015, you had a relatively moderate administration in Tehran under President Rouhani. The JCPA would in, inaugurate this great sort of halcyon moment. Um, these moderates would be strengthened. The difficulty with that assessment, as I sort of said at the time, was that it was only effectively seeing what you wanted to see, which was the sort of the window dressing, the, the sort of the, uh, the moderate face of the Iranian uh, regime. Many of those behind Rouhani and others were simply not sympathetic to any of this. I mean, there was an argument that clearly they needed money. They wanted to sell their oil. And this is where I think we're going to head down soon, of course, is this idea that they need a certain sort of cash injection in that sense. What's happened since last year, of course, is that Rouhani is out. Um, that sort of deep state has come to the surface in a very, very forceful way. <laughs> and now the sort of hardliners, you know, what, what you see is what you get. I mean, it, it, it's basically upfront and clear. Now, they also want the sanctions lifted. They also want a sort of a redressing. But in a sense, what, what you've got here are sort of like people, to coin a phrase, who are prepared to accept no deal. You know, So they sort of say that's what they say anyway. But a lot of this is bluff and bluster, as we know. I mean, the idea is that actually no deal would be terrible for them. But the fact is they, they've got a much, much more hardline view about all this. But more importantly than that, I suppose, they're unwilling, I think, to make the sort of compromises on their ideology. Which is very antagonistic towards the West, particularly obviously <laughs> antithetical to the state of Israel, for instance. That simply is is going to make life a lot lot more difficult. I mean, it, it it's going to mean that even if you do get to this sort of agreement at some stage and at the end of February, whatever, that a lot of other aspects are going to be are, are, are going to continue. So that you know, the the, the dominance of an organization that I'm sure you're you're familiar with, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, for instance, and their activities in the region. You know, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps sit at the high table of Iranian politics right next to the supreme leader and basically... They're the ones that feed the ideas. A lot of the moderates who might have sat at the high table are either sitting at the far end or have basically been ejected. You know, they're just not even there. So this is this is this is the problem you find. You find a supreme leader in the sort of twilight of his years, probably a little bit less compassment than he used to be, being heavily influenced by more, you know, hardline elements within the regime who have strong vested interests in maintaining the status quo. And you know the, the the situation is one that even if you do get an agreement which as i said i think is more likely than not but still what the impact of that will be domestically is goes likely to be slight
0: so there's a whole load of stuff i really want to ask about iranian politics because i always used to think that you
1: think the presidency mattered
0: well a, an interesting fact i would observe about the presidency from 1989 onwards under the second constitution iran has had um, it's just started with its fifth president. It's had four presidents, each of whom has served exactly two full terms, eight years. And they've moved between being quite moderate and quite hardline. So Rafsanjani, Khatami, Ahmadinejad and Rouhani. And now we've got Raisi. And my analogy, which I think you don't like, is that I see that, that Iran, whereas most countries have a sort of, a pyramid, a prime minister or a president at the top. And Iran has a number of, of sort of parallel channels upwards, and I sort of describe this as like a fork. And one of them is IRGC, and one of them is the president. And 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 where the supreme leader sort of sits. Clearly, what you're saying is the supreme leader is sitting at the top of the fork. Yeah. But the lines of the fork coming down don't necessarily interrelate with each other across ways. I mean, what
1: I would say, what I what I would say, I don't think it's a bad analogy, actually. I mean, if you look at it and say you, you'd you get your intelligence and security services, you'd get the IRGC, you get, you know, the judiciary, you'd get parliament and, so, and the presidency would be one of them. Technically, you see, under the constitution, even as revised in 1989, you know, the prime ministership was abolished. You get the president. The president is the chief executive and the chief executive and and the head of state. I mean, the supreme leader is some sort of like religious supervisory ethical body. What's actually happened is that the president has become the prime minister. I mean, that's, that's that's essentially what's happened. And all I would say to you in terms of your fork analogy and the sort of fingers of the fork, as I chop off a few fingers, and then you see what's going on. Do you see what I mean? I mean, you get rid of some of the fingers.
0: That's such a Middle Eastern suggestion. Yeah, I Alex. mean,
1: that's that's the way. I mean, what's happened is is that they just don't they just they just don't reach the supreme leader's office. the, the key, the key thing, though, of course, in that is that, and it's an interesting game of semantics here. So you know the president is considered the chief executive. Let's say the supreme leader is the chairman, so chief executive officer. But way the way the Iranians have sort of basically argued this is yes, he's the chief executive, but he executes the policies made elsewhere. I mean, do you see what I mean? He's he's not someone who devises the. It's not like a you know the presidency in France, for instance, or or America, or America.
0: So, so there's something quite interesting on the negotiations then because um, people hear the word president and they think, oh, president. But in fact, in Iran, as you said, there, there's so many different sort of columns of power. I mean, power. there's actually,
1: yeah, there's actually, you know, you can draw some quite good analogies with the Soviet Union, you know, in the sense that, you know, where does power really lie? Is it with the General Secretary of the Soviet, you know, the General, whatever, the, the Communist Party? I mean, it's the the idea that, you know basically you have all these officials and they come out and they do but actually at the end of the day they have to go back to the big cheese in the background and say you know what what say you and if the supreme leader comes out and says yes then that's all well and good and in, in 2015 he appeared to uh, although you know he, he he didn't let them actually explore what the possibilities of jcp were and uh, you know the, the, these days he's actually saying very little I mean, he's saying very little. He's not particularly interested. He's trying to show as as, as little interest as possible. And so at the end of the day, you know, the final say, the final say lies with a supreme leader who is not accountable to the people. I mean, his his authority emanates from elsewhere. He, 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 He does not see himself as part of what we might call the constitutional system. Uh, in terms of an accountability to the people. He's basically seen as a figure that sits on top and is accountable to God. So I mean that's quite a different you know, I think people in the West need to really fully appreciate that. I mean it's it's a different system of, of authority
0: and government. And I was reading, and you might tell me this is not correct, but sure. um Khamenei is eighty three. He's accountable to God. This a suspiciously complete set of terms by presidents has led to the election of Ibrahim Raisi last year. Is it the case that you can't really be president unless the supreme leader has organised everything so that you win the election, or is it actually less clear than that? and And you could argue that some of the presidents were were elected. Against the desires of the supreme leader, but the the reason I'm asking this question is it, it appears that Raisi, as a kind of ultra conservative, might be being shaped to be possibly a successor to the supreme leader who's 83. What's your view on that? I
1: think this is you know this has been a process. I mean, I think people tend to look at the Islamic Republic and think it's like you know. It, it was born perfect, you know, it sort of came in in 1979, and that's it. No, it's it's certainly true that really, up until 2005, at least, you know, presidents were being elected that the Supreme Leader may not have liked, partly because the Supreme Leader, when he became Supreme Leader in 1989, was actually not in a very strong position. I mean, he was sort of building up his, uh, his base. But since 2005, it's, I think it's increasingly true that, He's had a much more interventionary sort of role in the elections, all the elections, by the way, and particularly the presidency, where he's, he's you know, these days, you know, if you want to run for president, you have to get his approval. I mean, it's it's pretty explicit now. Twenty, twenty-five years ago, that may not have been the case. They might have done it as a courtesy, but not necessarily, you know, it wasn't a definitive. Now, now you pretty much have to. I think the notion of Raisi as a successor, I think that that's, in my view, is probably unlikely. Uh, partly because I think Reyes, he has showed himself to be really quite you know, mediocre in his role, even as president. I mean, he's he's not a confident sort of person. My own view, and I've I've said this before, is that actually the supreme leader is preparing for his son to take over, and that's that's something quite again distinct. And lots of people disagree with me on that, by the way, but it's 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 clear to me from and I you know I've written about this that you know what you're seeing actually is a is, is a preparation for that. And Raisi and the other people being put into places of of of, of power are basically to support that transition when it happens
0: very interesting so we'll be placing our bets now ali <laughs> that's right and you'll either be i've right said or it wrong. now i've said it now yeah. <laughs> coming back then so, so we've got at the moment it appears a kind of cementing of um, traditional what what we call hardliners i think that's obviously a subjective term but hardliners in charge this question about the relationship with america sure. and Again, if you look back in so most of our adult lives, the the conversation in America or in the West about Iran has always involved an element of a discussion about regime change. So the aspiration is to is to change the way that Iran functions. And that goes back, as you've written very persuasively, to a sense that, you know, America in particular sees nineteen seventy-nine as this sort of pivotal moment that that they can't really get over. It's a trauma. It's a national trauma. Yeah. So at the moment, it appears, I mean, certainly, certainly quite a lot of people in America are, are arguing that actually this foreign interventionism didn't really get us terribly far. Afghanistan's been a disaster. We could interfere in the Middle East till the cows come home without actually achieving anything. Has the desire for regime change changed or... Is it still there? You know, what what are the possible options that the the sort of foreign policy options that the West can consider other than this longstanding aim of somehow making Iran something different?
1: Well, I I mean, I think the whole discussion about regime change has become so, so, uh, you know, sensitive and so people get an allergic reaction to it for, for obvious reasons, because, you know, we have the experience of Afghanistan and Iraq, and that obviously hasn't gone very well. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I think sort of interventions have been quite a disaster. And, and you know, part of the problem is, in my view, certainly, is that American policymaking has sort of lacked nuance and lacked a certain degree of, I mean, the favorite word these days is granularity. Uh, but, you know, it, it's that sort of looking at what what you expect. At the same time, on the Iranian side, of course, they tend to use regime change as this very emotive term. I mean, it obviously triggers various emotions. To apply to everything. I mean, it, it, you know, basically, if you sort of said to them, well, you know, we, we sort of think you, your behavior is not helpful or something. I mean, and, and that's a normal exercise in diplomacy, by the way. I mean, you know, when, when you engage with different powers, you know, you sort of say to them, well, you know, frankly, you know, we'd rather you didn't invade so-and-so, you know, or, you know, we were talking about, you know, Russia and and, and, and Eastern Europe and so on and so forth. I mean, it's not a question of regime. What, what the Iranians have basically said is that if you ask us to change our behavior – or to remove aspects or, or to modify our ideology, vis-a-vis, for instance, the state of Israel, let's say, that constitutes regime change. So so basically, I mean, there's very little room for manoeuvre there. So I think both sides are sort of complicit in sort of abusing this concept of regime change because it's quite clear also on the American side that the regime change is sort of used as some sort of catch-all to just mean we don't like you. I mean, that that's, you know, it, there's no actual sort of... In, in, you know, detailed policy involved in that, and frankly, you know, uh, as I've argued before, you know, this idea that you know the the solution to Iran is to turn it into a failed state. Yes, well, that's exactly what we need in the Middle East. I mean, you know, yet another state that's just collapsing. I mean, it, 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 these things are not really thought through uh, properly. So I think you know there there are there are issues with that language uh, that I, I don't think it's useful at all. The problem that Iran has, in a sense, or the Iranian that we have in America is that whatever public opinion says, uh, political opinion in America is still, you know, emotionally traumatized by the experience of 1979 in a way that some political opinion in in Iran is traumatized uh, by 1953 and the coup of 1953. I think both of these are in some ways, you know, they're politically expedient, you know, events to sort of like... uh, to build on, obviously, the, in the case of America, it's a little bit more proximate. In 1953, you know, as, as, as Iranians will never tire from telling you, you know, the British and the Americans conspired basically to overthrow uh, the prime minister of Iran at the time, a gentleman by the name of Dr. al Mossadegh, who had nationalized Anglo-Iranian Oil. Um, now, how that you know developed and took place is a matter of great debate among historians. It's a that's for a separate podcast, to be honest. But the uh, but the fact is, obviously, it's very emotive among. A certain generation of Iranians, and it's been used, I think, by the Islamic Republic very effectively to whip up, you know, a general anti-American sentiment. Even though, as I've often argued, you know, many of the, uh, I think, values and principles that Dr. Mossadegh stood for have largely been ignored by everyone in the Islamic Republic. I mean, they don't adhere to anything that he, you know, he was a secularist for a start. So, you know, and and, and arguably, you know, uh, a secular democrat, a nationalist, and this way, so you know this is not what the islamic republic really is interested in nonetheless they use these historical uh, experiences they politicize them in a way the americans use obviously the hostage crisis the seizure of the embassy in 1979 this is very emotive don't forget the iran contra you know developments that's also really uh, had a deep, deep, profound impact on the Republican Party in, 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 in America. And what this means is that there are no, how should we say, there are, there's no sympathetic voice in America for Iraq. I mean, you know, whether you're Democrat or Republican, each of them have a reason not to like the Islamic Republic and the Islamic Revolution. And, you know, regrettably, also the Iranians don't do enough to basically address that they they want to appeal in a sense to a more populist sort of narrative about how we're resisting the great Satan, and so on and so forth and there'll be many people in America of course who sort of think that's great but the fact is you know as I used to say to Iran I've said you know if you continue shouting death to America every Friday you're not going to win friends and influence people and if the if the answer to that is well, shouting death to America is part of our culture, which, I mean, I think is appalling, but nevertheless, you know, that's what they say. Well, I say, if it's part of your culture, then, you know, I'm sorry to say there's not a huge amount I can do about it. You know, the Americans also have feelings too, if I can put it that way, you know, and if you're going to behave in that way, if you're looking to change the mood in in the United States, you, there are some fairly simple things you can do to sort of address that. And, you know, of course, there were moments. I mean, there were moments after 9-11 and other places where that that could have been achieved. And I, I, I think also the Americans have missed successive opportunities to try and sort of square that circle. But by and large, as I always remind people, if you go and look at votes in Congress, they're almost, I mean, uniquely, I think, it's almost unanimously against Iran. I think I think in one case in the Senate, there was a vote 99 to 1, and it was Bernie Sanders had abstained. I mean, that was basically, I mean, you know, and how can you, you know, what, what does that mean? I mean, it's it's a ridiculous situation to be
0: in. And I presume that having the Islamic Emirates of Afghanistan next door to the Islamic Republic of Iran. Yeah. Well, is it competition or is it in simplistic terms, yeah. viewing from far away, presumably this now looks like a trend, even though in actual terms there's not so many similarities between the two. But if you're sitting in America, there's suddenly a proliferation of states which are essentially Islamic in governance. Does that make a difference?
1: Well, here's here's the great irony, by the way. I mean, you, of all people, really enjoy this one. So back in the 1990s, you know, when the Taliban were picking up with a bit of Pakistani support and sort of moving into Afghanistan, Um, the iranians were vociferously opposed to the taliban i mean they 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 really and they saw this basically as an american sort of proxy and of course one of the one of the reasons they saw it as an american proxy is because lo and behold you know members of the taliban were being invited to washington to discuss you know pipeline deals and so on and so forth and i remember that very vividly i mean i was in iran at the time and you know people say what the hell are the americans doing and i i wrote about this in a book i said you know one of the problems with this is that what America is signalling to the Iranians that is that political Islam is not the problem. Iran is the problem, because, I mean, if you can sort of cozy up to the Taliban, then you've got no problem with political Islam. Of course, then, you know, 9-11 happens all a bit of a fiasco and whatever. And, uh, you know, the Iranians came in and helped. I mean, they helped quite extensively in terms of because, you know, great. You know, you want to get rid of the Taliban? Fantastic. You know, we'll give you a bit of a helping hand. Ahmad Shah Massoud had been assassinated just before 9-11. You know, it was a major blow to the Iranians. And so, you know, that relationship, in a sense, has always been quite an antagonistic one. Unfortunately, I think once the domestic political lineup in Iran changed, and you get Ahmadinejad coming in, there was a view that actually, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. And, you know, once the coalition of the willing, including Britain, you know, were sitting around in Afghanistan, the view of the Iranians was, "Ah, you know, we can maybe give the Taliban a bit of assistance in order to make life difficult for the Americans. And That relationship, again, was one that was a a question of the Iranians riding all the horses in order to make sure they win the race. I mean, that's maybe because they were sort of basically playing it a little bit, you know. But, you know, one could say very, very vague, very Middle Eastern even, to be horrendously Orientalist about it. But subsequently then, you know, when you get the debacle last August, and it was a debacle, the the current Iranian regime actually welcomed it. I mean, that was the bizarre thing. They sort of said, oh, great, you know, Taliban 2.0, you know, they're all very nice. They've learned all the lessons of their past. Interestingly enough, that was not echoed among the Iranian population as a whole, who were absolutely horrified (laughs) that the Taliban were coming back. So what you find is actually now the relationship between the Iranian government or the official organs of the Iranian state and, and the Taliban is that, you know, it's cooled a bit, you know, because the Taliban are clearly as an Islamic emirate. And I think we talked a little bit about this in our Horasan podcast, actually. Just to give a big plug for people to go back and listen to that, is that you know what you find is as Sunni radicals, they have a, a very, very you know poor, as uh, you say, uh, understanding of Shi'as. I mean, they don't like Shi'as at all, and they made it very clear. So there was a brief sort of like I think six week honeymoon period where they sort of went to various Shia ceremonies. Now, I mean, the Taliban, the the the, the, the gloves are off. So I think at the end of the day, there'll be a sort of a um, what would you call it? A cold peace. Also, I don't know what it would be,
0: you know. They have to find a way. They have to find a way to to coexist, I suppose. Talking about coexistence, Ali, um, yeah. the Abraham Accords. Right. Because yeah. if America and Iran haven't got on very well for um, forty years, Iran and Israel really, really don't get on. No, um, no. and that's been one of the factors that has driven. The way, I think, the way that Iran has developed its network of non-state actors, proxies, allies around the region in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen in particular, and Iraq, obviously. And that's moving to a new phase, I think, since the Abraham Accords, because although the Abraham Accords are essentially, uh, you know, from the Israelis' perspective, a, a sort of an outreach to the Arab world, um, and we've had now the Prime Minister and the President of Israel visiting the UAE. So this is kind of monumental developments, But it doesn't it just harden a division between parts of the Arab world that are prepared to make pragmatic deals with Israel and, and the Iranians and the people that the Iranians back who aren't? And you've had, obviously, on the one side – A series of assassinations of iranian scientists in iran and on the other side the activities of iranian backed militias i hate the word proxies because it's something else but but particularly hezbollah and the houthis who are now using really interesting modern uh, sort of military tactics that are available for um, mass production and really i mean so for example what I like to call the UAE-UAV question mm. was a set of attacks projected by the Houthis, who are the Iranian-backed rebels, uh, not really rebels anymore. They're in charge, sort of, in, in Yemen. They're, they're doing coordinated missile and UAV, little UAV attacks on the UAE. Um, there have now been three. And, and the one in the middle of January, which targeted um, an oil facility, blew up some fuel tanks, killing three people, and also caused a fire at Abu Dhabi's airports, which was under construction. So, so that's fatalities inflicted in the UAE by small-scale, easily acquirable weaponry in the hands of the Houthis, probably supplied by the Iranians, probably made by the Chinese, because that's where most of the drones are coming from. So all massively complicated. And then this week, in fact, yesterday, Israeli President Isaac Herzog, Visits the Gulf and the Houthis fire a ballistic missile, which the Emirates intercept. So, so you've got this really complicated balance of power thing going on, where the UA, you know the Emirates have chosen Israel. Um, they're putting themselves forward as this sort of modern tourist center, business hub, and the Iranians are saying we can actually get at you with these ill UAVs that we've given to one of our network groups which you're in conflict in and 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 that's i don't think trending in a good direction
1: no i mean it's always been it's always been an, an iranian threat i mean it's not even an implicit threat i mean they've made it quite open they said you know if you think that you know you're going to put pressure on us we can always you know put pressure on you through simply targeting, you know, the UAE or, you know, the Saudi oil refinery and others, and you're vulnerable. And I think, you know, there have been times, obviously, that the Persian Gulf states, the the Arab states of the Persian Gulf have realized how vulnerable uh, they can be to some sort of like uh, attack by the Iranians, either by their, you know, militias of one sort or another or 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 the Iranians themselves. Although the Iranians have always tried to be very careful about not, you know, they have to have plausible deniability on a lot of these things. And there was a wonderful interview I think with a with an Iranian, I think an IRGC guy, I think it was last year sometime, where he gave an interview which seemed dangerously close to saying that they were supplying weapons to the Houthis, you yes. know, but actually sort of basically he said, no, no, you know, we're just telling them how to build these things, you know, we're we're, we're just, you know, almost like we're only putting on training classes for them, you know, this sort of thing. And, and it got, you know, people saying, well, you know, it's all a bit suspicious about what's going on. I think the interesting thing about the Abrahamic Accords, and depends how they, they develop, of course, is that it is, I think, a foreign policy failure for the Iranians. I mean, you know, essentially what's happening is that they have succeeded in effectively pushing a lot of these uh, regional countries in, in, into the arms of Israel. Um, and also in part, obviously, to make sure that they are more in line with American you know, foreign policy objectives. So you know, there is a, I I agree with you, actually, I mean, I I think there is a sort of a a much uh, clearer sort of division, shall we say, in in the region, which does not all go well, for the future. And I think, you know the Iranians themselves will have to think very carefully going forward what this might what this will mean for their for their strategy going forward. But it's 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 you know clearly what we're seeing in the region is 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 effectively a I mean I don't know and if you would like the word proxy war or whatever but there's definitely obviously a conflict going on intermittently in some ways a sort of a, a almost like a guerrilla war rather than all out war and um, this will clearly be I think to the long term detriment of the sort of ambitions. Of, of, of the region. I mean, to, to, to be very blunt about it, you know, during the Khatami years, one clear strategy for the region was to build alliances, get regional stability, because for them that would be important for the growth of the Iranian economy. I mean, it sort of makes sense when you think about it. What Iran wants to do is to have available markets. Well, I mean, what it's doing now is basically shutting down available markets. And if, if you think that actually its best markets are Iraq and Syria or something, I mean, that's not really something to, to write home about. Clearly, there's obviously other parts of the region, Central Asia and others. But again, it doesn't, you know, it's not a good environment for economic growth.
0: That's so interesting, if you put it like that, because they have actually become instinctively, or maybe this is not fair, Destabilizers, but I think now I'm saying that I think it's not fair because they are stabilizing the people they support. So their intervention in Syria and Iraq That's has right, been yeah. very much to support incumbent governments against a destabilizing force. So I think it's it's not fair to call them. The trouble is that the people that they're stabilizing are probably not the last. <laughs> the destabilizers, <masters>. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean this,
1: this is the problem. It's it doesn't, you know. Let's be very frank about it. You know, if Iran wants to develop a coherent regional policy that is basically in its interest, it has to come to an arrangement with Saudi Arabia. I mean, Saudi Arabia is the lead, you know, producer in OPEC and others. I mean, it has to come to some modus vivendi. And of course, there's been a lot of talk about that, but you know, it ha- we haven't got there yet, obviously. And I mean, this is going to be a serious problem. So, cozying up to Syria is, is I think, a, a, a poor. Uh, substitute for actually having a constructive. You know, does, what 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 people don't realise is there doesn't have to be any love lost. I mean, it just has to be a constructive relationship, a relationship where they can understand each other. And uh, at the moment, we're not there.
0: Ali, we're running out of time. We are, and, I'm afraid. Um, so we could go on
1: and on. Well, I could. I don't think you could, but I could.
0: No, I could, actually, because <laughs> there's um, a lot to say about Syria as well. Yeah, which, yeah, um, that would be
1: interesting. I need to come and interview you, actually, about something. Oh, I don't
0: think. But actually, on Syria, that because and my husband, John Rain, has written about this, that actually the Gulf states are being very pragmatic on Syria at the moment. They're reaching, they've basically accepted that Assad is going to stay. There is, you know, and and that stability is what they need in order to push forward their own projects. So there is a potential, I suppose, for Iran and and the Gulf states to have to work out a way of working together on Syria if they want the region to return to a sort of functioning region.
1: But of course, that that also depends on what the Russians want, isn't it? Really, I mean, you know how the Russians handle. Because I get the impression that the Russians aren't terribly keen on the Iranians hanging around too long.
0: But there's another school of thought that says all the Russians really want is their man in charge, and for the Middle East to be a bit of a mess, because then it it's something else the Americans have to worry about. I yeah. suppose um, it's not in their interest to fix it at all. Ali, so you've you've given us a. I say a a majestic run through (laughs) on Iran. Do we exit the stage feeling optimistic or pessimistic? This is your final word.
1: I think I have to navigate a middle route (laughs) between it. I, I think, you know, my optimism is that I think we will reach an agreement of sorts. My pessimism is that it's an agreement that will simply require us to continue to negotiate for further you know i mean it's it's it, you know that's that that's a result to an extent but i don't think it's going to be the closure of, of the issue and certainly not in the sort of the great um you know triumphalism that we had in in july 2015
0: thank you ali more of the same for a, a very long time sadly <laughs> thank you yeah. thank you uh, very much for listening thank you. and we'll see you again soon bye